so sorry <laughs> that I'm late. Um, could you do me one favor? Could you um, press on my um, icon and then there should appear um, make moderator. Could you could you do that? Because since you started the room, you you the only moderator, so I uh, have to do all the um, bringing up and and things like that. Hi, Jamie. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, Brigitte, can you hear me? Um, uh, can you? You're muted. Um, the unmute button is all the way on the bottom right of your screen. There's a little microphone icon. Can you? Can you hear me? Yes. Oh. Found it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. So, if you could make me moderator, so I can bring people. App that help us like coordinating them. Sure. Should so, I move to the audience? No, um, if you press on me, make there should be something like make moderator. Okay. Mm, on the bottom, when you press on my picture, on the bottom should be something ah, yeah, with I moderator. See. I see. Are you Perfect. Sure? Thank you. Good. How are you? Thank good, you. For good. Being early and... I, I'm good. I, I now I hear you fine. Okay. Perfect. Do you, do you hear me? Yes. Yes, I can hear you. Hi, Jamie. Yeah. Jamie is our That's crazy. my co-moderator. I don't understand. It, it 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 doesn't work with iPods or with the. Uh, it works fine. We're fine. <laughs> I have the Hold same it. problem. I bought expensive iPods for this to have like the background noise uh, filtered yeah. out and they don't work well. No, <laughs> so... no. <laughs> I didn't hear you actually. <laughs> I was so mad when I, yeah. when I bought actually, it. That, that's really weird. Hello. Why wouldn't it work with it? Hello, doctor. It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> Thank you, yeah, Jamie. Yeah, you get to open the and everything first time on clubhouse basically and opened the room and everything excellent so a, lo a lot of people from your lab here because i yeah, see a lot i invited of some people of the lab oh i invited them all it's yeah I let's they... bring them up yeah how do they do that so um i invited <clears throat> if you can hear me uh, i invited you to speak so on the um, top of the screen should appear uh, accept invite to speak or something like that. I always forget the exact wording. Yes. Hi, ah, German. Yeah. Is that I'm I saying the name right? I think yeah. he has trouble speaking. Please join <laughs> the party. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Everyone. Hi, Polit. I Please correct me if I'm saying the name wrong. Yeah, let me. Hi, unmute. everybody. It's correct. It's Colin. <laughs> nice Hello, to welcome. Nice to meet you. That's wonderful that you're all joining. Mm -hmm. This is very exciting. Yeah, this is amazing. So let's. May wait. I just May ask, Doctor, is it oh, Van yeah, Zunder? 
Is that is that the yes. correct pronunciation? Vans under. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to make sure that I didn't make any mistake. Okay. Let's maybe wait another minute or two uh, sure, to sure, give sure. people time to arrive. So uh, I I invited them, uh, Katerina, because uh, we we uh, we used to having the Zoom meetings. And uh, I, I told them this is probably one of the new ways because it's nice so people can sit on the, you know, do the experiments and listen to the talks at the same time. It's not so, it's another interactive um, uh, way to, to present and hear other data. I think it's, it's very interesting. So they might want to copy the idea. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm, we, I'm, we are using the app more and more even just to meet really quick and talk about something because you can mm. also make private rooms. Okay. And um, what I like is if you want to have a discussion that maybe a lot of people would be interested in general in, you know, not just our, your group, but also other people. And then on the, at the same time, um, you can make that it's automatically recorded the room. Ah, or yeah. just, and then people can join and listen or ask a question. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of an interactive way to do um, a podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, like I say, I've never really done it. So, but it's interesting. It's first first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you try. You're trying it out. I mean, you know, it's just. I didn't have if to you worry don't about like the hair at this point. Exactly. <laughs> it has several advantages. <laughs> you always look the same. <laughs> it, it turns out to be surprisingly effective to get some dialogue going amongst people who maybe otherwise wouldn't feel comfortable speaking really? up. And uh, ah, yeah, yeah, it's actually because it's like. For all the podcasts that you listen to, how many people you listen to, you kind of just wish you could ask them one question, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, come in someone in here, you can. So it's... I like that. So the barrier to ask question is lower. So people are, uh, mm. yeah, you don't have to show the face. I, I agree, I agree, which is actually very good. Yeah. Oh, like that. Mm. Mm, so mm. even with bad hair days, you can ask questions. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Bad hair, good hair. Yep. You can even wear your flip flops and just sit at your desk and just talk to us. <laughs> we have very talented people actually, but they come usually later there from the West Coast and so, so they will listen to the recording that um, use AI to generate like uh, artistic pictures or make like theme pictures for the room. Like we had the spider room uh, about engineering because it's very interesting spiders can with their silk kind of yeah. do ballooning so they can fly for hundreds of miles even across really? continents they use the friction of the air um uh, at the the charge of the air friction yeah and with that they so then people made like um pictures of themselves as Spider-Man and yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that talented. <laughs> when I found out that fact, I was blown away. Oh, the natural world can be incredible, can't it? Mm. Wow, that and, is interesting. And your work is really exciting as well. Um, I've got a bunch of questions that I'm looking forward to asking them after your presentation. Um, 
So, but please forgive me for any any silly questions on my part are oh. purely my ignorance. So please forgive me That's... on that front right away. Oh, don't 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 worry. Most of the questions are really not silly. <laughs> <laughs> I try always okay. to tell my students at least ask one question because if you have the question, you're all smart. Somebody else also had that question. You know, it was either it was either not good explained or it was more difficult. You know, it's a, it's a, it's another level. But I think in general, then there are really few stupid questions, you know, <laughs> honestly. Mm. Is this yeah. the mindset that's actually led you to where you are today? Sorry? Is this the mindset, you know, you're thinking about asking questions and not being afraid and just probing and getting oh. answers? Is this the mindset that has brought you I, to absolutely. studying? Absolutely. I think this is the is a very important motivation and I... Some of my students are here and I always tell them, you have to ask, if you don't have, if I don't ask a question in an audience, in a, in a, if I go to a talk and I don't ask a question, that's normally because I didn't like the talk. <laughs> yeah, that is not because I thought I, I, I didn't understand because if I didn't understand, I had quest, asked to ask a question. If I thought that uh, if I have a lot of questions, it's because I have a lot of interest and, and I just want to know every little bit of it. But if I don't have a question, I would worry. You know, uh, from my point of view, I tell people, if you don't ask questions, it's because you didn't like it, you didn't understand anything, or it was just not your, your you thought it was a bad talk. You know, that, that happens. Not all talks are good. Sometimes, you know, even great speakers have bad days. But um, if, how do you present your data? I, I put a lot of effort normally in that um, to have it visually very attractive also and in, in, in a guideline. So normally what my, my husband is also a, he's also an investigator. What we ask is, how was your talk? Okay, how many questions did you get? <laughs> because that's the way we measure how, how involved people are on the, on the talk. That is incredibly interesting. You know, that's actually very true. I, I've never thought of it like that before, but you're right when no one has any questions. Um, mm. Everyone just is maybe just get bored or it's just I, not I, what they what they like. I was at MIT. I did my postdoc there. And this was a very hot area and, and a lot of very good people. Um, I was working with Martha Constantine Patton, her husband, uh, Bob, uh, uh, Robert Horvitz is there, uh, Susumoto Nawawa, and these people will always ask questions. You know, they, they teach you that you have to ask questions. And some of the first questions of Susumoto Nawawa, he just had started, let's say, in neuroscience. They were very basic. And I saw some other students like laughing a little bit, like, what a stupid question. And I realized these were not the stupid questions. These were the real questions. I mean, we take a lot of dogmas in, in, in our area. We take things for granted. Oh, that's somebody said that in 85, so it's true. And that is a huge error, I think. Like, there's so many things that we don't know or things we think we know. Um, and then comes, you know, these this interesting questions from uh, Marta, uh, always asked questions. Uh, Susuma Tonawa always asks questions, yeah, if he likes the, the, the talk. And these, you would say they are basic questions. Well, science moves on with really basic questions. <laughs> like in our area, in, in this particular paper, we talked a very basic uh, question that many other labs also try to, to tackle. Um, but these are going to 
very sincere questions and i think these are these are important it's not only about some you know some tools and things what what do you want to really show so that's incredible that that's not even that that's not just admirable that's also very exciting because it means people like me are like less afraid to ask these what we think are silly questions you remind me have you ever heard of um an old poet called rudyard kipling he had there's a famous quote he said when it says i knew six honest serving men they taught me all i knew their names were what and why and when and how and where and who and i always memorized that one because it just made you ask anything from all directions i always loved that one have you heard of that yeah no no but i yeah. really like it <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can no, send but... the quote uh, in the in the chat is there a chat oh. there? Yeah, yes, that would be nice. Be, and I'll be, able, yeah. I'll be able to do that in just a few minutes, but absolutely. Um, so what brings you here at the moment? Where are you at the moment? Are you in Chile? I saw in one I'm of in your... Chile. I'm in Santiago mm -hmm. de Chile. Um, Ooh, nice. <laughs> Still. <laughs> it's oh. going to be a warm day, but only for a few hours. We're getting into winter, so... <laughs> All right, yes. Oh, <laughs> well, um, here the weather, the spring weather was not too great. But let me start by introducing you uh, a little bit. And um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, welcome everyone to the Science Society. Special thanks for everyone from the lab. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. That's, uh, that's so wonderful that the whole team is here to uh, discuss. So, um, um, Brigitte, Dr. Brigitte van Zundert um, graduated as a biochemist from the Hoger School West Brabant in the Netherlands and, uh, and she obtained her master's degree in molecular biology from the University of Utrecht, also in the Netherlands, and while performing her thesis uh, at the University of Massachusetts. Um, which was focused on transcriptional regulation. And then um, she moved to Chile, where she obtained her PhD degree in molecular and cell biology from the University of Concepcion. And her thesis focused on molecular mechanisms underlying glycine receptor clustering at synapses. And she was awarded for her, the thesis, the best doctoral thesis, by the Chilean Foundation for Cell Biology. And um, then she received, uh, she joined a postdoctoral training at the MIT, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard Medical School, where she worked on different projects. And that's, I, I think, where the journey to um, start working on ALS um, started. And in 2005, she started her independent lab at UDEC um, and moved um, into the Center for Biomedical Research, now Institute of Biomedical Sciences at the University Andres Bello um, in Santiago, Chile. And there she is a full professor. And uh, she also works at the Center of Aging and Regeneration. Um, yeah, we are very honored to having you here. Your paper was such a wonderful 
um, story and um, with great results that hopefully will help a lot of people. So uh, yeah, the stage is yours, speak it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Katerina. Thank you also. It's great to have a colleague of ALS, of course, here. Um, I'm also excited. The interest of the paper has been has been quite in interesting. Um, and yeah, first of all, of course, this has been a long journey. Many people have collaborated on this paper. You can see uh, if you, if people have downloaded the paper, can they see the paper? So it's easier for me to go through it. Apparently, apparently somebody in the chat said they cannot. Let me. I use the link you provide, but let me. Yeah check again um but uh, i think you can start and somebody said that it's not working but i will fix okay. it so may i ask doctor just before you begin your talk yeah. um because in the science society we normally have everybody just uh, the speakers give a little background of themselves it's a exactly. good way to get I everybody to comfortable with. yeah oh, ab abso oh absolutely. absolutely please then Okay. Absolutely. So I think, of course, this is another way of, of, of presenting science. So if people could download in the meantime, hopefully the paper, if you have some troubles, I can send it also in the meantime, the PDF. So let me just know, uh, Catherine. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but I will start with the introduction. Um, why, why we started the study? I mean, the, the question is always very important. And if people see the, uh, for example, can see the graphic abstract, there's some some spiking is there, there's some action potentials. So um, I come from a background of a mix of cellular and molecular biology and also electrophysiology. In fact, I did my PhD studies on electrophysiology and then I was invited by Bob Brown and Martha Constin Patton um, to work on ALS uh, and, and electrophysiological recordings in slices. These are neonatal slices um, uh, from very young these are the typical ALS mouse that are still the cornerstone of ALS. So these are the SOT mouse. And what we found in very early stages, so I'm talking about the first two weeks of development, that there was a huge hyper excitability in the neurons that we recorded. And that was kind of surprising. Of course, we went to look for something. It wasn't that, <laughs> let's see, but we, it was still surprising that these cells fire so hot uh, during these very early stages of development. And then we also found some other changes, features. We found actually structural changes in the brain. Uh, this is all within the first two weeks of uh, early development. And we also found some other parameters in, in behavior. So the animal was not able to write quickly. I mean, these are very young animals, so it's really hard to, to do this kind of uh, behavioral studies. But it was clear to us that ALS in this form, in this mouse model, is not an adult disease. This is a developmental disease. So that kept us a lot of thinking. And so we found then that the, there was this huge hyperexcitability and, and this kind of hyperexcitability is mediated by potassium channels and, and sodium channels. Um, so, so we were interested in that, but um, I finished my PhD, we, we, my postdoc, sorry, we published the data. Uh, in a good journal, got a good feedback. It was only with one model. And, and I learned a very important lesson there that if you want to go for higher journals, you need more than one model. <laughs> yeah, people are not happy with one model, especially for ALS. There are multiple models, mouse models. And of course, uh, people have done a lot of investigation on using human models 
using particular human uh, stem cells. So these are mostly iPSCs, fibroblasts that are that are differentiated to astrocytes in this case or, or motor neurons and also have uh, uh, done this with patient material. So several patients with different mutations. So we have this uh, mutation in SOT, superoxide dismutase, in C9-ORF, in TDP43. And then we have, of course, the FOS at ALS. We have the sporadic ALS patients. So it, there's a quite of material there to, uh, to show a particular um, set of data and, and to investigate if something is a common feature is is wrong. What we had done is, so I went back to Chile. I was like, okay, what am I going to study now? I was excited about this hyperexcitability. I felt this is something really important uh, because, and then we did some studies um, and we, we, we were very intrigued by, um, by some studies. In the year 2003, an important study came out by the Don Cleveland Land showing that in animal models uh, using chimeric animals that in fact it's the non-neuronal cells that surround the motor neurons that are critical for the development of the disease yeah the onset and the development actually yeah and they were later and then identified as astrocytes so if i have a mutant astrocyte a mutant and als astrocyte surrounding a wild type motor neuron uh, in an animal that motor neuron will die yeah, and then the, you can see the symptoms of the disease. On the other hand, if I have a mutant motor neuron surrounded by healthy astrocytes, yeah, then actually you have, it depends how effective, of course, this cell transplantation is done, you can actually have benefits and the animal will not suffer the complete uh, symptoms of the disease. So that was very intriguing for us, uh, exciting. And then in 2007, several papers come out, uh, particularly the paper from Sergio Brzozowski and the Maniatis in Egan Lab, two back-to-back -back papers in Nature Neurons, were very excited because they show that if you have uh, co-cultures or separate cultures by uh, astrocytes and motor neurons, and you take the astrocyte conditioning media of ALS astrocytes and you collect it and you treat motor neurons, wild-type motor neurons with it, then you can also cause motor neuron death. So then comes the term non-cell autonomous toxicity of motor neurons. Clearly show that in this case the astrocytes are liberating a toxic factor that kills motor neuron. Yeah, we have so far so good. <laughs> yep. Yeah. For me, and, anyone else, if you have questions. And I think you were able to to give in the 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 the, the paper, not? Yep. I see it. Yeah, we're able to share. Perfect. So, if people can see it, so in the in in the graphic abstract, going on that, so we we basically show the same here that if you have astrocytes, mutant astrocytes, it will kill motor neuron. What we found in our first paper uh, from my lab then that effectively this astrocyte condition media causes then the hyperexcitability of the motor neurons, and when we block this hyperexcitability by different uh, treatments we can actually then prevent in a, in a dish <laughs> the death of the motor neurons. So uh, we were excited about that. And then of course, uh, we wanted to find what is in this tube, yeah? What is in the astrocyte condition media? Uh, we were not the only ones, uh, several groups, uh, again, the laboratory of uh, Przewski did a, a great effort to find it and other labs. 
and we did also some typical biochemical approaches to search for uh, candidates, which, for example, um, you could have glio and neurotransmitters. We looked for cytokines, chemokines, ATP, TNF alpha, L SOT mutated it itself because it's, it's very toxic. We did also unbiased mass spectrometry. We and also other groups like the Sergio Fusoski lab. And basically, we didn't find clear hits. Yeah, that was very surprising and very frustrating. Um, so we didn't really know, okay, how are we going to continue this, this story? Yeah, how are we going to find it? So we had some basic biochemical assays done and also other labs. We knew it's negatively charged. We knew it wasn't that large. Yeah, less than 30 kilo delta. If you use cutoff filter, it's still pretty toxic. Was pretty resistant to heat sensitivity. And then actually, so we, we got stuck until my postdoc, which is the, per, the, the third uh, author on the paper, Agnieszka Daira. She had been doing a lot of electrophysiology and she came to my lab from Poland to do these electrophysiological studies. And she found this paper in molecular brain from Evgeny Pavlov. He's now a professor at uh, NYU. And they showed that polyphosphate, inorganic polyphosphate, was able to regulate sodium channels, potassium channels, calcium channels. So there was this molecule that has no carbon. As it has no carbon, you can identify it by mass spec. So that made a lot of sense for us. And then actually we found another paper that was um, by the Andrew Abramov lab in 2013, just before the other paper, showing that polyphosphate is a gliotransmitter. It can be released from astrocytes. Yeah, so it can be released by astrocytes. And from the other paper, we knew it can activate and, and cause hyperexcitability of neurons. So that made us a lot of thinking or rather said, not so much thinking, much, much doing. In 2014, we had uh, yeah, an idea of this factor that it was polyphosphate, inorganic polyphosphate. But then it took literally seven, eight years to demonstrate and prove that in fact, polyphosphate is this critical factor. Yeah. So how are we doing so far? Can people follow me still? Yes. Yes, if you have any questions on this point, because I think now I could go a little bit more in what is polyphosphate and then in some of the figures I, will, I can discuss that. Is there any particular question on the, on the, on the background? I think we're okay at the moment. Has anyone got anything? For, for me, it's fine, but please go ahead. Yep. Okay, yep. okay, please go ahead, yeah. Perfect. So then um, what is polyphosphate? So it's a very simple and a linear inorganic polymer, yeah, that comprises of three to thousands, in fact, of orthophosphate residues. It is linked to high energetic phosphoanhydride bonds. Where people have looked at it, it is a, it's found in every single cell and organelle. Um, it has over one billion years of evolution which is quite interesting, of course. It's highly expressed and present in bacteria and yeast. And Arthur Comberg, for example, studied it a lot. He was obsessed about, uh, about this uh, uh, molecule. And actually, his wife 
was the one who uh, was able to identify the polyphosphatase. So the vital uh, physical functions, it's a source, of course, of energy. It's a reservoir for uh, uh, phosphate, polyphosphate. And it also, because of the negative uh, charge, it's a chelator of divalent cations. So this is very important, of course, in any um, disease, neurodegenerative disease, where a lot of cations, uh, copper and zinc, and, and uh, is involved in calcium. So what in mammalian cells, surprisingly, when we started this, there was very little uh, on it. In fact, the first letter that we wrote to the reviewer or to the editor was very simple, like there are eight papers in polyphosphate in mammalian cells. So this is an important issue, yeah, because you want something novel also. During the last few years, a lot more people uh, got involved. It's exciting. We, we know a lot more. Uh, only since four months, only since four months ago, we know that there is now a mammalian polyphosphatase. So this is exciting. The ones that we use in the in the study is the yeast and the bacteria polyphosphatase. Yeah. So we have now something to handle it. So in the graphic abstract, so then I can go to the different figures. So on the one hand, we did the characterization. So we used three different models, uh, mouse models of ALS and FTD. And I talk about ALS because these are the mouse that show typical motor neuron loss and they uh, have problems uh, walking, running, and, and they will uh, die from respiratory failure. We also have uh, FTD mouse model uh, on a combination of that. The C9OR, for example, has pathology of ALS, but it also has some symptoms of frontal temporal dementia. Yeah. So we made, we made slices of them. We looked at the uh, enrichment of polyphosphate in these slices by doing uh, staining assays. We also used the cultures of them. Uh, the cultures were also to detect uh, in, increased levels of polyphosphate and also to generate then this astrocyte conditioning media that we then used to uh, apply it to, to motor neurons, to wild type motor neurons. And along that, of course, we wanted to manipulate the levels of um, of the polyphosphates in that media by using different approaches. One, of course, is using the enzymes to degrade the, the polyphosphate. And we also used uh, nano-sized cationic polymers like ORA10 and 9 and, and some G3, C4, PAMAM uh, aminos, which are very interesting because they can be applied also to in vivo systems. So we use that and um, on the right side of the graphic uh, abstract, you can see also we use human samples. We used post-mortem spinal cord sections um, from uh, ALS uh, and FTD uh, patients um, with mutants and salt, say 9 orf and, and sporadic ALS patients. And we also were able to do biochemical assays, um, both on the astrocyte condition media and on the uh, CSF or the spinal cord fluid from ALS patients. And, and that's the last figure of the, of the paper. So as a highlight, we find that PolyP is enriched in human and mouse ALS and FTD astrocytes, both in vitro as well in vivo. And in vivo, I'm talking about slice preparations. Excessive PolyP is released by the ALS FTD astrocytes and it's toxic to modernors. Then we have the in vitro studies indicate that PolyP is a new therapeutic target for ALS and FTD. 
and our studies of the human samples indicate that polyp is a new hallmark, a hallmark because of the slices, but also biomarker because of the CSF data. Yeah, so you can, and that's of course, we have to have more data on that. We're working on that to get more and more samples to, to show that it's also specific for ALS, FTD, and not for other uh, degenerated diseases. So if everybody has the figure, then I go, go I, I propose to go to figure one, to the last figure of the, it's uh, the figure six, seven, I think. I'm not going into the uh, supplementary data. There's a lot and it's open for discussion. In my case, if you have a question about the figure, um, I won't mind if you ask them directly. Yeah, um, it's fine to me to, to have some, maybe I go too fast, so <laughs> I don't want to do that. So, um, are we fine to go to the first figure? So, um, doctor, um, I, I feel like I'm missing at some amount of uh, broader context, um, partly because I joined later on okay. and I, I don't. Uh, so, so, so my question is more about uh, the, the broader picture here. Why is it being released? Why is Poly P being released? And ah. uh, in the first place, and why is it building up? Yeah, yeah. Well, that is a very good question. I cannot answer your question right now. Um, polyphosphate, like I say, they are important for functions. It, it might be, uh, this is a hypothesis, that increased levels of polyphosphate is necessary for the astrocyte. Yeah. For example, for the ALS astrocyte. It's important for any astrocyte. Yeah. If you reduce the levels of poly P in a cell, which we actually did in, in studies in vivo, it didn't help anything, you know, because in the cell, intracellular poly P has a lot of functions. Like I say, it's a source of energy. It's a major source of energy to generate ATP. Yeah. It's a reservoir for polyphosphate also. And it's a chelator for, uh, for, for sequestering toxic bivalent cations. Yeah, so it's, it is a vital function which people have much more shown in bacteria and yeast. We have less evidence in mammalian cells, but this is probably one of the functions. When it's released, when it's extracellular, and when it's then released from the cells by vesicles, uh, we show that also in the paper and the supplementary data. We didn't do it in the main figure because another group already had shown that in 2013 and, and in an uh, other paper in 2018, we replicated that paper uh, data, show that it can be released. So it, it's a gliotransmitter, so it should be released. It's important to generate action potentials. I think this is some of the work from, um, from uh, uh, Evgeny Pavlov from the Abramov lab showing that this is a gliotransmitter. This is only a few papers, but it's important for that to activate then the channel, sodium channel, potassium channel outside. So why do ALS astrocytes particularly have these increased levels? It might be to counterbalance, for example, um, excessive bivalent uh, cations. We know, for example, in salt mutant, uh, we have an excess of, of uh, free uh, copper and zinc because the salt molecule can, cannot handle it, the, the, the misfolded one. That's a possibility. It might be a way to have more uh, energy for the cells to counterbalance um, some expert, uh, some pathological features that the ALS astrocytes has. And it might just be just as a collateral damage like, oh, 
it's also released because it will go to the vesicles yeah now what we don't know and we are studying this of course is why do we have increased um, levels of polyphosphates what are the enzymes involved and as i told you the enzymes in bacteria and and um, and, and in uh, yeast have been widely studied and identified. Uh, however, only since the end of November, the first polyphosphatase was identified in mammalian cells. Great paper, urge you to see it, it's a fantastic paper. So we are analyzing, of course, if we also have now different levels of expression of this enzyme that is called Nutres. Yeah, This enzyme was identified in, in mammalian cells, however, it was um, identified as an other for other targets instead of polyphosphatase yeah so from that point of view um we don't know like i say why um, but as a collateral damage it will be released from the astrocytes and then the problem is is the motor neuron that it it, it comes to this excessive polyphosphate um, and cannot handle it and will activate the the, the channels that it has uh, located on the membrane and as a default system then it cannot handle it it will open the channels it will activate the the voltage sensitive calcium channels and the calcium overload will occur that's a little bit and of course one thing and in a broader context i, I would like to mention that um, in als it's really high uh, uh, known that astrocytes are important are critical for the for the progression and the development of the disease um, in other diseases um, as i said Alzheimer's and parkinson huntington there's also quite some evidence that astrocytes are involved in in the neurotoxicity uh, uh, of, of neurons then yeah so is this um your is this answering your question Yes, it's it's a it's a fantastic explanation. Thank okay. you. <laughs> I'm really happy to hear that. Let me record that. <laughs> oh, uh, thank don't you, worry, thank it's you. all recorded. So it, you, you're doing really well. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, as I was telling in the introduction before, like, please, people ask questions because you know, um, especially if you have been working eight years, like, uh, really obsessed about the thing, you forget the bigger context. Yeah, and and this is important. Yeah, very important. Very important questions. Okay. Sorry. I did not hear that. Oh, I beg your pardon. I was just going to ask there. Um, so uh, as what you're saying, um, what you just saying a moment ago, you think that these are um, somehow being created to counter something else, but the balance is not right biologically, and this is why the excess is building up and causing these problems. And I really dumbed down way anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I. I like. I say we don't know. We. We are okay. a lab that does actually a lot of um, transcriptional and epigenetic studies. We of course are very uh, excited about the data, but one thing that if we want to understand anything about the expression. The aberrant expression of the enzyme. We need to know the enzymes, <laughs> and so this is one of the troubles that we have had. Also for this paper, like I say, only at the end of November, the first uh, mammalian polyphosphatase has been identified. 
so now of course we are studying that from a point of view of epigenetic changes yeah is the promoter of this uh, of this enzyme uh, altered um, is there a different signaling pathway um, there's so many is there we are very interested in enhancer promoter interactions all these questions they pop up of course and understanding we have studied actually we have uh, several papers on epigenetic changes and we see huge global changes in the loss of repressive um, mark marks uh, for the histones for example histone uh, lysine 9 uh, which is a very important histone mark for repression of promoters we see that at the genome level at the specific um, with chipsec analysis we also see changes we also see changes in many aspects now of course since only a few months we can start to look at one <laughs> so far the only enzyme that is studied so we want to understand that is this like i said is this something occurred the cell decides to make more polyphosphates because it's required to its own survival but then as a collateral damage because it's released is because the death of the motor neurons or is it because uh, the, the there's an aberrant uh, polyphosphate metabolism in the cell that actually is not even good for the for the astrocytes it, it's just all uh, it, it just a consequence of huge changes in the epigenetic landscape of the astrocytes we don't know this this is what we are studying with also my colleague here at UNAP um, uh, Martin Montesino uh, we have been studying um, ALS and epigenetic changes for a long time not all the papers are out we hope to <laughs> get more papers out this year but this is basically what we're trying to understand yeah why what is the mechanism because as you can see from the paper here this little mechanism what we have resolved is a mystery but now we have to understand why is this occurring uh, at the same time of course um, since we go slow on that because we have very little information on the mammalian enzymes of course our targets are okay whatever we have let's target that yeah let's target understand that overexpress the enzymes let's see what we can do to uh, in, in mouse models in animal models to see if we can have a beneficial effect yeah but we have two parts of course on the one hand let's try to solve the the, the problem with the minimal information that we have and then on the other hand uh, more interesting maybe from a mechanistic point of view on a on a on a molecular mechanism on on gene regulation how is this possible why is this occurring mm -hmm. Jamie, was that answering your question? Yes, yeah. I think about I was trying to unmute there. That that actually is explaining it a lot. Thank you very much. That's great. Thank okay, you. thank you. Like I say, we have some papers on, on on epigenetic changes. We this actually was is not a side project. This was not a side. This is what we really wanted to do. You know, find out. It took longer than we thought. Um, but like I say, we are very interested in the molecular mechanism and most of our papers actually are more orientated to epigenetic changes than to finding molecules liberated by astrocytes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm, that's incredible. We have to look at them. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, also, epigenetic changes is much more interesting because they, they are reversible, you know, and they impacted by, by, by uh, external causes. So one thing that... Uh, 
well, we studied pollution, air pollution, and this is in other samples. We did the same for um, some, some um, an ALS model. And basically, if we have mice that are under normal mice, even normal wild-type mice, and they're under pollution, air pollution, this is ambient air pollution. It was in Chile. <laughs> we leave these animals and we found huge changes in gene expression and in epigenetic changes. Yeah, and that will take to the uh, to the, the presence of some of these um, molecules that we all know in, in a beta and and, and uh, oxidative stress and inflammation and in fact we did the same samples uh, analyzed samples from humans that were living in, in Mexico City with high pollution air pollution condition and we found also again huge changes in epigenetic in 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 in, in the cells so we're really looking for that like how is that possible? Why is an external factor so, in this case, so negative? And are there positive uh, events there? So on the one hand, of course, uh, having a good nutrition would be important. Um, I'm personally very interested in, in meditation and several groups actually are looking into. If you have um, meditation, you have a good lifestyle, you are more relaxed, how does that impact your life and how uh, impacts that your epigenetic status? Yeah. So we're looking, we're trying to look for that as an alternative. This is, of course, uh, this is other science. It's, it's not so hard to, it's not so easy to manipulate. It's a different way of looking at the other science. But I think, especially for ALS and all other neurodegenerative diseases, most of these, the vast majority are sporadic cases with no familiar um background and no genes many of them no genes involved no genes involved so are epigenetic changes causing an altered gene expression of some of these genes i think that's an interesting question yeah because the vast majority is not caused by a gene mutation Mm -hmm. Is this why you're actually examining both pollution and people, you know, external circumstances and how you mentioned things like meditation and healthy lifestyle? You're also trying to look at anything behavioural just to try and find some sort of common factor in this. Is, is this the absolutely. goal? Yeah, hmm. absolutely. We think that okay. especially with ageing, the, the epigenetic regulation of the, of, of the genome it's just less strict, you lose that. And then if you have an impact, a negative impact, like air pollution, stress, uh, will probably cause, um, what we see at least, will cause a pretty uh, extensive change in the epigenome uh, regulation and lose of uh, classical repressive marks. So then, like I say, what we're looking at, what, we, what we're trying to find out is in, in the same uh, SOT ALS, and we also have that in the human version, we have the, the mouse versions, we're looking to understand how the transcriptomic um, changes are related to changes in the epigenome landscape and in the chromatin structure. We also, do, we also have data on that. How is the chromatin structurally changes and how does these uh, epigenetic marks are changing during, for example, development of a disease um, with a gene mutation, but also when there is air pollution or other kinds of triggers, external triggers um, that could result, that are known to result in behavioral changes. Exactly.
So it goes much more far away <laughs> than finding the code. Now we have a good, interesting target, of course. Now we want to study the, the, the promoter of this particular and the, the enzymes that regulate the metabolism polyphosphate. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. I missed yes. your yeah, I missed your introduction, sorry, if, I, if you already mentioned about this. But as far as I know, this polypies kind of, they are kind of survival factors in other types of cells when, you know, cells try to survive. So as you just mentioned, can be consequence of things rather than cause of the disease. Yeah. And if maybe I don't remember correctly, but for example, upon DNA damage, uh, yeah. poly phosphates play a key role for the repair yeah. to solve the mechanism are you considering to look at for example can be transcription coupled dna damage or mm -hmm. other types of damage mechanisms may play a role in this process mm -hmm. so to solve the mechanism are you considering to look at for example mutations happening in the promoters or enhancers or which mm -hmm. affect the repair process Second question, very quickly, have you discovered the kinase causing this? Or, and the third one is, what happens if when you apply poly-P exogenously? Like, how does it affect uh, different types of neurons and astrocytes? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Very good. Yeah, I noticed. <laughs> so, Yes, we are looking for the mechanism and, and your question or your observation is very good. Of course, we are interested in, in DNA repair mechanism. We have some interesting candidates that we're looking at. We try, though, um, to look as unbiased as possible. Yeah, because um, and because we do uh, a lot of uh, omics help us to to keep it broad because we have a phenomenon um, and and we try to understand, okay, um, to look at broadly and not focus too much first on a specific or DNA repair uh, analysis. One student in the lab actually is looking a little bit more in that, <laughs> um, how uh, polyphosphate can change nuclear uh, uh, necessary DNA repair or DNA mechanisms, yeah, are also involved in, in, in transcription translation. <laughs> For example, uh, Bliss-Seq, I think, can do that. Do, did you know that? Bliss-Seq, it's that? a new type of sequencing. Bliss-Seq, uh, it's no, like no. a new type of sequencing I should uh, approach to check the mutations in, you know, promoters and enhancers. It's like a, to check the DNA repair or damage that events. That is very interesting. That is very yeah, interesting. It's Bliss, like happiness, Bliss-Seq. Okay. Just check, check it out, yeah. <laughs> Sure, I will look at it because that's one of the what we do, RNA well, RNA seq chip seq, uh, with different uh, marks. We do attack seq, uh, we do now three uh, C and four C. But this I hadn't uh, encountered. I think it's a great idea, great idea. And then for your last question, then I come to your second question. Yes, we have done uh, in experiments. Um, using polyphosphate, uh, uh, adding it to different cultures. Um, we look more in our cultures, of course, we know that it affects and it's actually in this figure, it caused the, the in, in this in this uh, paper, we show that polyphosphates will cause hyperexcitability of both interneurons as well as motor neurons. There's not a little large of difference. In fact, 
when we uh, look at the the the, the uh, percentage of action potential is not that different then uh, we know that the motor neurons are killed but we think that is more related to intracellular signaling changes than to the receptors that are on the on the membrane we also know from another paper that came out last year very exciting when they use more or less the same polyphosphates synthetic polyphosphate um, added to hypocampal neurons actually the the cells were doing better and they were protected against oxidative stress yes so clearly um, polyphosphates externally can have different effects in our interneurons we didn't see too much our motor neurons it killed the motor neurons uh, within a lifespan of a few days and in hypocampal neurons it actually protected it so we have this probably the same um, uh, channels uh, that are on the membrane the sodium and potassium channels and some calcium uh, channels that are regulated by polyphosphate but the intracellular uh, mechanism are different and motor nerves particular are always very prone to anything you know they don't have good calcium buffering uh, systems and that calcium will lead to the to toxicity so um, that that i think is, is interesting it has really different effects depending on the type of cell and then regarding your second question no we do not know the kinase we are looking at this we're doing uh, uh, different unbiased uh, experiments which are difficult uh, one of my uh, PC students is working on that and to try to identify kinases uh, that are imp <laughs> important mammalian kinases which again they have been identified for bacteria and for yeast but the kinase in in, mam in mammalian cell has not been identified so this is again because if we know the enzymes we can analyze uh, exactly also their status the promoter uh, enhancer uh, epigenetic status etc we can dissect the how these kinases and and, and phosphatases are working and that's mm -hmm. the that's the most difficult part i think to identify the kinase that but is very I difficult can, yeah yeah, I can yeah. suggest another approach oh. if you like. Yes, so we are open ears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So of course you can look at the at the transcription level, but kinases usually they don't change the RNA level. You know, you usually its activity is different. Exactly. Somehow upregulated, right, or overactivated. Uh -huh. So there is a technique called MIPMS. I can write to you. Ah, it's yes. multiplexing beat inhibitor associated with mass spectrometry or something like that basically okay. it is a kind of chromatography approach you run your cell lysate through this column yeah. and in this column you have a combination of different kinase inhibitors and these kinase inhibitors or not yes inhibitors but they can bind to only activated kinases so you basically okay. enrich for active kinases after you run your samples, you collect it at different conditions, whatever. And then you can identify basically through mass spec which kinases are activated. Do you know what I mean? Oh. There is a yeah. cell paper published in my previous place. I can send it to you. They use yeah. it for cancer cells, but yeah. uh, you can apply here, I think. Wow. Cheers. Great. Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing now the zymogram assays. Um, they're much easier to find polyphosphatases than to kinase. <laughs> that is uh, 
true. So another approach for kinases would be very important. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Can I just ask very, very quickly, when you mentioned about the genetic mutations that happen, um, mm -hmm. is there any pattern at all in the mutation? Like, do you know it, mutations only happen in say five different ways, 10 different ways, or is it literally random and is any way you can see? You mean in the different genes that encoding the... Yeah, 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 yeah. When, when that happens and you said that the genetic mutations kind of happen and become a bit unpredictable and things like that. When that's happening, is it is it purely like you don't know how they're going to mutate or they always mutate in, in certain ways? No, no, no. The, 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 the enzymes like or the, the proteins involved mm. that are causing ALS, like superoxidative mutase or the TDP43 or the C9ORF, uh, well, the C9ORF is a repeat element. Um, but uh, these ones are pretty much identified. Now, in superoxidative mutases, there are more than 150 mutations found all along uh, the, the gene, which is really impressive. Um, it's on the N-terminal, the C-terminal, where the copper and the zinc binds. And what they clearly do is not losing the enzymatic activity of, of salt. Some of them does, but other don't. There's no correlation that is not a loser function, but in that case, what uh, it's a misfolding. So uh, superoxidative mutase uh, interacts with several proteins and that interaction is altered, yeah? And again, it's amazing that we still don't really know <laughs> uh, what the targets of SOT are. A uh, few years ago, a paper came out in uh, yeast showing that superoxidative mutase can actually be uh, a factor that can bind to the DNA, like a transcription factor. Um, and there's that, that would be exciting, but we couldn't, uh, there's not a lot of people have, uh, or other investigators have shown that. So. Uh, TDP43, it's it's in the nuclear, it's in, found in the cytoplasm, um, C9ORF, it, it has several functions also in autophagy. Um, it's basically these questions, what does this protein do, it's, it's, it's not solved, it's not solved. And, and we are just a step, we're looking at the output and what they have in common. Yeah, in common, they all have hyperexcitability. Um, and if these mutations then ch change the cell uh, or causing a cell pathology that cause other random mutations, yeah, we, we don't know, but that is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Any other questions or shall I go to one of the figures that you guys want? Um, is there something that people want to have explained particularly? Um, yeah, actually, hi everyone. Uh, I have a question. Um, so when it comes to ALS, is the issue or the problem, does it lies in the neuron or the synapses or the neurotransmitters, basically? Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, like, um, Elina um, I mean, we are um, we are looking more the role of of this uh, that is not completely um, related to the motor nerves. I think clearly the if you look at, at the patient or, or the the animals models that we have of the IPC models that we have, 
is of course the gene, especially salt. That that protein is five percent of every cell, so it's everywhere. Yeah, and it's not only in the in the central nervous system; it's in the muscles. It's everywhere. It's it's a highly expressed ubiquitous protein, and and of course the mutant. Um, What's also always interesting, the mutant wasn't generated when you're 50 years old. The, the mutant was um, at the beginning when the first expression started, also the mutant protein started to express. And in fact, um, uh, salt start to in animal models at E14, 15 to start to be expressed. We know from studies, from really beautiful studies from other labs, uh, particularly that if you have also from, from, from transplantation cells, uh, cells in, in animals, in uh, making chimeric animals, uh, making transgenic animals, that if you have the mutant um, expressed only in motor neurons, you will not develop ALS. Yeah, so it's not enough. If you have them, but if you have the, the mutant um, expressed in the motor neurons uh, and or only in the astrocytes, if they are expressed only in the astrocytes, you can trigger uh, uh, some pathology and in some papers also uh, pretty much the symptoms of ALS. If you use it, in, if you express then the mutant gene, for example, in oligodendrites or microglia, again, not too much happens. Probably it's a multi <laughs> organic system, yeah, many cells are involved. Um, and it goes beyond that. It's probably not only the astrocytes, microglia cells, uh, muscle cells, oligodendrites. What about mast cells and other uh, immune system cells? Probably it's, a, it's a, the whole system that is involved. Now, targeting astrocytes, at least in this case, and our results, we, we, uh, if we target polyphosphates in astrocytes only, uh, of course, we did those. We did experiments. We did experiments in uh, targeting polyphosphate in astrocytes and motor neurons and, and all the, the whole system just using a CMV promoter. We didn't find too much. Yeah, not, not a lot of benefits. Might be that there was a, a wrong strategy afterwards thinking about it, because we are targeting the polyphosphate intracellular, and we think that probably that not was not the wise step to do <laughs> um, because other papers show that of course the polyphosphate is important now we are trying of course to target polyphosphate extracellular so independent where it comes from what we what we try to prevent is that the polyphosphate uh, within outside motor neurons will um, is accumulating or increase at increased levels and then start to activate the channels uh, on the motor neurons yeah so that's a little bit more of our point, but many cells types are probably involved. Um, um, we believe that astrocytes are probably part of the initiation, not so much of the progression of the disease. So we want to make that change a little bit. So we think it's important for the initiation, the onset of the disease, but we don't think that uh, astrocytes are that critical for the progression. I would think then again, microglia, the whole inflammation system are much more important. So that will also then uh, is important for any strategies that we want to develop uh, at what time. Uh, in, in cell culture, everything, everything is simple, of course, but in the animal models, things get really complicated. So when do we start a treatment and which cells we target? <laughs> is that... Um, 
Einar, is that um, what you were asking? Yeah, thank you. A lot of okay. information. So thank you a lot. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Yeah, thank you for all the questions. If you want to now, um, yeah, share the, the rest of the what you were planning to share, please go ahead. Thank you. Well, I think that worked out very well. I mean, uh, it's, it's exactly the context and, and specific questions more that are, and I think was a good discussion. <laughs> yes, I agree. Uh, it was great. And um, yeah, we, we've been going for an hour. Um, so um, I know, oh, Andrew joined uh, as a speaker. Do you have time for one more question? Sure. Thank you, Katrina. You're very courteous. Um, um, hello, Dr. Van Zenderd. Mm -hmm. Van Zenderd, sorry. Um, I do have a question, but it's more of a curiosity. So I don't, I'm not a specialist. I'm not an expert, but I've been looking at some um, statistics and uh, maybe we can find some correlation. So here's my question or two uh, before we leave the Q&A. Um, is there a specific reason uh, I always, my mind always goes back to mitochondria, uh, which also can put a lot of uh, uh, pressure on gene expression. But the, the, my question is, what is the fundamental reason that men are 20% more likely to express these uh, gene mutations uh, between the ages of 40 to 70? I mean, mm -hmm. there's a not more than one question, but what could be, because like I always uh, correlated with mitochondria because I'm not sure if this myth was busted yet. We inherit 100% of mitochondria from our mothers. So could it be something there that uh, um, is not inherited in men from, uh, from our mothers? Ooh, no, that is a question which I really cannot answer because... <laughs> Uh, my 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 background on this area is very low, but I, but I can tell you there are some differences between the, the several of the hormones, for example, in the male and the female. And we have done some studies. This is a hormone that is released um, uh, highly by by the human by the man testes, but it's also expressed in uh, by by astrocytes. And we did some cultures then very early on. And what we found that if you, the, there's already a gene, it's a change in the sensitivity of um, male motor neurons versus female motor neurons on astrocyte condition media. So somehow, um, because this factor is important to, to, to maintain the survival and the, and the stability of motor neurons, um, males in the beginning are doing much better but when you then add this toxic astrocyte condition media the male motor neurons die much more rapidly than the female motor neurons so there's definitely uh, differences in, in already hormonal effects on the, on the intrinsic uh, properties of, of, of motor neurons or, or regulated by different hormones so I'm not sure I, what I had understood from there's not a lot of difference between females and males. We always in our studies, I have to say, always in our studies, we use uh, uh, animal models 
we use females and males. Um, we divide them always. So we have different graphs for, for the, uh, any of the treatments that we do. We see in some treatments a very well, significant effect of a drug treatment that only is beneficial in males. And in other drug treatment, we find only beneficial effects in females. We cannot explain that <laughs> with the limited information that we have. Um, that's why I think it's Could it be the mitochondria? Mitochondria, uh, without doubt, there's a lot of studies in uh, showing, for example, in, el in the case of superoxididismutase, uh, several uh, very beautiful studies have shown that salt can interact directly with uh, BCL, yeah, BCL2, and other mitochondrial proteins. In fact, uh, when, when superoxididismutase, the, the gene and the mutation have been found, a lot of people worked on mitochondrial effects. And actually, there are studies on the electrophysiology of mitochondria, which is really impressive. And yes, there are changes in there. And I'm sure um, that, that might give you a small change in onset and uh, of disease and the progression. Without doubt, there is something there. Um, so far, um, I think none of the groups have found something uh, specific. And also for the human cells, this is also important because we have a fibroblast of, of, of patients or iPSCs uh, from patients. And we always try to have not only, you know, from females, from males, having the, the, the proper co control subjects uh, from the same age. Um, so it's not orientated to one or the other um, sexes. It's it's really important yeah, to have yeah. this mix. Yeah. And in fact, uh, yeah. A quick follow-up question? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So provided uh, there is a correlation, let's say, between the, the connect and disconnect between biology and genes or how biology can um, impact or affect gene expression. Have you found any correlation between like dieting? Uh, is there anything that um, people, let's say in the early stages should avoid or could maybe enhance their diet with? No, but this is a very exciting question, of course. And especially, you know, we, since I started this work I, I, in, in 2002, I clearly have uh, changed my diet, <laughs> much more uh, healthy, uh, eating fruits and vegetables. And this, for example, polyamina or the, the, the uh, poly-P, polyphosphates, they're very negatively charged. And we, very, we know that the counter molecule are uh, uh, spermidina and, and other polyamines. Yeah, so yes, spermidine, spermine and putrescine, we did some ensayos in, in, in culture, which were very effective to, to prevent the motor neuron death by induced by media astrocytomedia uh, with polyphosphate. Now, what is interesting in the last few years, because where are these polyphosphate then specific uh, vegetables, uh, 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 polyamines, they are particularly in vegetables, uh, uh, highly concentrated, people don't eat vegetables. So some studies a few years ago show that, for example, in Norway, that people had 30% less of polyamine in their serum than uh, a few years ago. So that must have an impact, you know. I mean, these organic polyphosphates are everywhere. And if you are in, uh, uh, on top of that, have an increase in excess of them, um, surely other molecules can counteract that. So 
um, we are doing some um, studies with uh, giving animals uh, um, polyamine, this animal, this superoxidase mutant animals, to see if we can have a beneficial effect on the outcome. Yeah, and and in uh, uh, polyamines, also people have shown in uh, in inflammation that they're very uh, beneficial to reduce inflammation. So here comes nutrition clearly, clearly can have a benefit on the, on the function and, and on, the, on the onset and the progression of a disease. Mm -hmm. Could that be by any chance, uh, I'm not gonna take too much space. I know you have to move on from the Q and A stage. Um, <laughs> could there be any um, preventative, let's, it, could diet trigger ALS sooner? Yeah, I think that is a very good question. Um, I'm sure that external factor and nutrition um, in an animal model, uh, which is easy, of course, to, to test. Um, um, I think, yes, I think you can with the wrong diet <laughs> and the wrong stresses. Like I say, we did, um, we, we took animals and we left them six months. These are, um, these are ALS FTD animals that show very little symptoms. Yeah, they do the pathology. They have the pathology of ALS and frontal temporal dimension, but they only show some mild cognitive effects. We took this animal, we left them six months respirating the healthy <laughs> Santiago air pollution in the winter, the same air that I was um, taking. And half of the animals, we left them with a super filter to filter out all um, all nanoparticles, all toxic nanoparticles, ultrafine particles. And the animals with the ultrafine particles deleted uh, with the filters show the same mild cognitive effect and mild in the, in, in the pathology as we had expected. But the animals that were left uh, for six months with the air pollution, yeah, uh, which is pretty high in, in Santiago in the middle, in the, in the middle of the winter, they showed uh, much more severe cognitive uh, uh, defects. We just couldn't measure that, you know, having a problem with learning a memory, yeah, social interaction. They were highly stressed uh, compared to the other ones, and they were side by side in the in the same uh, place. The only one was the filter difference. And also, we found again then the hallmarks of ALS FTD were increased, and uh, epigenetic changes were robustly changed. Yeah, so we. we complete global changes in epigenetics. Yeah. So this is something like I say, um, uh, of course you want to have also the reverse experiment. So on the one hand we trigger, we, 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 cause, we cause more stressors. On the other hand, we use, we try to by, 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 by polyamine, by better nutrition yes. um, to, to, to reduce that, yeah. And if you may, if I may, if you may, like if I can be indulged with uh two small last questions and I'll, I promise I'll stop as, um, <laughs> in terms of, let's say when it's the full onset, uh, let's say spasmophilia, could it be treated with electrolytes or even NAD increase in slurred speech? And I'll stop there. Thank you so much for your time. So NAD increase in, in diet, and, uh, could it help with slurred speech and electrolytes and spasmophilia? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm not a, a medical uh, doctor in this case, but, I, I know from the symptomatic, I guess may, this is the way I look at it as a as a as a as a PhD. Um, once I think there there are a thousand ways to die. You know that there, there was this famous uh, 
program on TV, like a thousand ways to die. Once I think, and this is um, my, my, my colleague and, and renowned uh, ALS um, expert, Bob Brown has a slogan like cure ALS. And, and I strongly, I, I do not agree with him. I don't think it's best possible to cure ALS. I think it's maybe possible more to prevent ALS. I think once the, the, the system, I'm, I'm, I'm quite involved in plasticity for a long time. Once the system has decided to die, it's, there's no returning. I mean, it has 40 years, 50 years to try to, to, to reduce the pat pathological uh, effects. So I think once the system is dying, there's nothing to do. So besides, you can have cell therapy. Of course, you can have cell therapy. If that works for motor neuron disease, it's more difficult. But all the other things, I think treatments will not work because you're too late. So I would say prevent ALS would be a much better option or, uh, than, than, I think, uh, 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 cure ALS. But to prevent ALS, it's critical that we have good biomarkers which on this point we don't have. We don't have biomarkers, we don't have insomatic mar uh, asymptomatic markers. So this is, this is really critical uh, to progress for any uh, disease, neurodegenerative disease that we have. So the takeaway point is the best cure is prevention. The best way prevention. So one of the slogans that I have, you know, eat half, yeah, walk double, yeah, and laugh triple. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you thank for you um, coming today. <laughs> this, I think it was a great discussion. It was uh, not so formal and very, very great interactive discussion. So really appreciate you going with the flow basically of, um, yeah, of our group here. So that was wonderful. And Please come back anytime and also your students uh, to Science Society. <laughs> uh, if you have updates to share, something interesting to share, or yeah. if your students would like to practice to speak in public, they are always welcome here to try it out. And um, yeah, and thank you everyone um, for asking questions, for being here. Uh, this was, uh, I think, really great. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, if you if you like this, join this group here, Science Society. And uh, tomorrow we have a guest speaker that will talk about um, ex-utero mouth embryogenesis, so an artificial womb uh, that was um, quite successful. So um, it's at 1.30 p.m. EST if you would like to, to listen. Yeah, well, so also thank you like, again. Um... Where could people find you in case, uh, you know, someone wants to invite you on a podcast or an interview? Where could people find you on the social? Um, so the, on the website, I can, I can also share or do you want to? Uh, it was for Dr. Yeah, if you look, Sundert. I think if you look up Dr. Uh, Brigitte van Zundert, you will find um, her association. And also if you click on the paper, there is the affiliation oh, and, and the sure, email, sure. I you think, if you're fine to share no that. <laughs> I'm easy to find. <laughs> thank you very much, Doctor. I'm going to yeah, spend a you. lot of time going over everything you've said just to even start to understand 
everything you've said. It's your, your work is truly remarkable and yeah. incredible. Mind you and your team, thank you so, so much. Well, it's relatively you. close it's to exciting. my heart. This, yeah, very exciting because of Portugal and then, mm -hmm. oh, go ahead. Yeah, oh, no, go, go, go. No, because in Portugal, no, I just want, I, I just like the, the, the system, the, the dynamics of the, of the talk It's very good. And it gives a much more open space and, and, and where we, where, what are the real questions and where we want to go. So this was very exciting. I think for the, for, for myself and also for my students, this is, uh, and for other students, I think this is important. Why are we doing this? <laughs> that was the oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you enjoyed it too. It should be fun for everyone. So. <laughs> Uh, a symbiosis, not parasitics. <laughs> okay, thank you, everyone. Um, I'll hear you all back hopefully soon. And um, enjoy the rest of your day, morning, evening, wherever you are around the world. <laughs> okay, thank you very three, much. Three, two, one. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye bye. Bye bye.